And if you would please open in the Bible to page 934 or look in the bulletin, you'll find the Bible reading printed out for you. We're going to look at Acts chapter 25, verses 1 to 12. Luke, the author, writes these words. Now, three days after Festus had arrived in the province, he went up to Jerusalem from Caesarea. And the chief priests and the principal men of the Jews laid out their case against Paul. And they urged him, asking as a favor against Paul, that he summon him to Jerusalem, because they were planning an ambush to kill him on the way. Festus replied that Paul was being kept at Caesarea, and that he himself intended to go there shortly. So, said he, let the men of authority among you go down with me. And if there is anything wrong about the man, let them bring charges against him. After he stayed there among them not more than eight or ten days, he went down to Caesarea. And the next day he took his seat on the tribunal and ordered Paul to be brought. When he had arrived, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood around him, bringing many and serious charges against him that they could not prove. Paul argued in his defense Neither against the law of the Jews, nor against the temple, nor against Caesar have I committed any offense. But Festus, wishing to do the Jews a favor, said to Paul, Do you wish to go up to Jerusalem and there be tried on these charges before me? But Paul said, I am standing before Caesar's tribunal where I ought to be tried. To the Jews I have done no wrong, as you yourself know very well. If then I am a wrongdoer and have committed anything for which I deserve to die, I do not seek to escape death. But if there is nothing to their charges against me, no one can give me up to them. I appeal to Caesar. Then Festus, when he had conferred with his counsel, answered, To Caesar you have appealed, to Caesar you shall go. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Gracious Heavenly Father, please send your Holy Spirit powerfully upon us, the same Spirit that moved Luke to write these words, the same Spirit that moved Paul to stand as a witness in front of the tribunal of Festus. May that same Spirit, Father, be powerfully at work in us. Give us grace that with Paul and with your people right through the ages, we may stand boldly as witnesses. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. The theme of this morning's service is God's providential care, and that's, uh, that's appropriate on so many levels. There's so much going on in the world around us, and it is a very, very helpful thing, a very important thing, a, a wonderful blessing to be reminded again and again and again that there is a God, and He reigns over everything. He reigns over the world, and He reigns over us. And so it's with that background that we come into God's presence this morning as we look at this passage from the concluding chapters of the book of Acts. I'll just remind you, uh, we we read a moment ago from the uh, catechism, a few questions and answers. There's a section in the Westminster Confession of Faith. I read it a few weeks ago. I want to mention it again today. Uh, It's uh, in the... uh, confession and it stands out as an expression of our our hope and our confidence and this is true not only to us in the english-speaking presbyterian church but it's also the faith of the korean presbyterian church which we share in common 
This is uh, the section on providence. God, the great creator of all things, doth uphold, direct, dispose, and govern all creatures, actions, and things, from the greatest even to the least, by his most wise and holy providence, according to his infallible foreknowledge and the free and immutable counsel of his own will, to the praise of the glory of his wisdom, power, justice, goodness, and mercy. Um, Beautiful words, clear in their implications. And then section 7 in the same uh, paragraph says this, As the providence of God doth in general reach to all creatures, so after a most special manner it taketh care of his church and disposeth all things to the good thereof. As Presbyterians, as Bible-believing Christians, we trust that there is a God who reigns over everything and he even reigns over us. And he specially, in a very special way, uh, ordains and directs the circumstances in which his church ministers. So brothers and sisters, as we gather here today, we, we gather in the arms of our providential God who loves us and protects us and works in our lives to his glory and to our blessing. Well, if you have that Bible passage open in front of you, I hope you will keep providence in your mind. Because providence forms the background to the whole Bible, uh, to the whole New Testament, to the book of Acts. And I think there's a, a special way in which during this series on Acts, the concluding chapters, we can see how God is providentially working for good in all kinds of unlikely ways, surprising ways. Uh, That's what we're going to see this morning as we look at Acts chapter 25. I want to begin, though, by reminding you of Acts chapter 24, which we looked at last week. It involves a Roman official named Felix. And uh, this week in Acts chapter 25, we're going to meet another Roman official named Festus. I um, shared with you all last week that I'm a, a bit of a history nerd getting ready to go to England uh, to visit my son and an ailing uh, mentor, brother, Dick Lucas. And I love going to the UK because there's so many old things to see and so many historic things to see. And since I made that little announcement uh, about my history interest last week, several people have sent me links and book suggestions as well as little anecdotes of their own interest in history. Turns out I'm not the only history nerd around. Well, it's, it's interesting as a history nerd to look at the book of Acts because these chapters display, once again, how human history is intertwined with the Bible. Unlike other kinds of religious documents out there, the Christian faith is intentionally set in the context of history. It's not just a religious fiction, a series of myths, It's actually history. And you can look at non-Christian sources and other kinds of sources, and you will find over and over again references to the chronologies and the names and the individuals, the personalities that we're seeing here in this section at the conclusion of the book of Acts. Of course, Luke tells us that's his purpose. Uh, 
Luke, who was himself a, a, a well-educated man, set out to record, he says in the beginning of Luke's gospel, uh, an, his, a, a, an accurate record, a history of all the things that were involved in the beginning of the Christian church, from the life and ministry of Jesus in the gospel of Luke right through the beginning of the church in the book of Acts. And so this man, Felix, you can Google him. Uh, and it's not just Christian sites that will tell you about Felix. Uh, Felix was a real person. His name was Marcus Antonius Felix, Mark Antony. He, he was named after Mark Antony. Uh, he was a friend of a Roman emperor named Claudius. He was an in-law by a former marriage, and he was a favorite of Claudius. So he was given this plum assignment to go to a difficult part of the world and basically to be like a, a little Caesar, a, a, a little king who governed the Roman province where he lived. He had a wife named Drusilla, and she's also historical. She's not made up. She was Jewish, it says. Uh, Luke tells us that. We learn that from Acts chapter 24, verse 24. Actually, Drusilla was a Jewish princess. Uh, her father was King Herod Agrippa I, whom um, we have read about before in the New Testament. And she's the sister of King Agrippa II, whom Colin will introduce us to next Sunday. So these are people who were real. They were connected. They had relationships. Uh, Drusilla and Felix, uh, with whom she had a very rocky relationship. She had been divorced and she married uh, uh, Felix. They had a son. His name also was Agrippa. And Agrippa died when Mount Vesuvius erupted. You've heard of Pompeii? Well, uh, Agrippa, the son of Drusilla and Felix, who we read about here in Acts 25 and 24, uh, that young man, Agrippa, died at Pompeii. So you see how all the history is interconnected. You don't have to be a history nerd to recognize some of these names. Uh, Luke is going to pains to tell us about people who existed in the real world. Acts chapter 24 closes in verse 27 with a reference to the successor to Felix. His name was Porcius Festus. Now that name Porcius, uh, it's where we get the word pork. Uh, it means pig. So uh, Porcius uh, his first name, uh, his family name, meant pig, and Festus means uh, joyous or a celebration, a feast. It's where we get the word feast. So uh, Porcius Festus's name meant pig feast. Now, that's not the most likely name for a politician, but apparently it didn't prevent him from getting this plum assignment, and he came to the region where uh, uh, Felix used to reign, Festus came to take his place. Felix, as it turns out, had made a royal mess of things. He had found a bad situation and made it much, much worse. And so Festus comes in, and his job is to try to fix it up. Uh, the name Festus uh, is, is a, an interesting name. Before researching uh, this passage, the only Festus I'd ever heard of was in Gunsmoke. Uh, anybody remember Festus and Gunsmoke? Yeah, yeah, a few of us, are, we remember Festus. Well, Festus is the only person I'd ever known, this character on Gunsmoke, who, 
who was a deputy to Matt Dillon. That's the only Festus I'd ever known. Well, that Festus was named after a real Festus who lived long, long ago and who actually interlocked his life in the unfolding life of the church. So, uh, in Acts chapter 25, we, we see this character, Porcius Festus, uh, it says in verse, 20, in verse 1, uh, Festus had arrived in the province uh, just three days before all this happened. So he, he's just arrived. I don't know if there's an ancient equivalent of a jet lag, but uh, he had just arrived, and within just days, he's hit with all of this drama surrounding Paul. And Paul, who's a little tiny part of this larger drama going on, in the Middle East, going on there in Jerusalem. Uh, Paul's a sliver of this ongoing crisis. They've been having wars and rebellions. They've been having insurrections. There had been first century equivalents of terrorists. And so Festus is coming in, trying to make it straight. And within days of arriving, uh, here he is, uh, and he's called to uh, be the mediator between uh, the religious authorities in Jerusalem and this man, Paul. Uh, In verse 4, we discover that they've revived an old plan. Years earlier, they'd taken a ridiculous oath that they wouldn't eat or drink until they'd killed Paul. Well, presumably they had eaten eaten and drank occasionally between the time they made that vow and the time that Festus is called to Uh, be a part of their uh, renewed ambush plan. Uh, But they remember their vow, and they decide they're going to act on it now. This is their opportunity. They're going to get Paul brought in uh, through a circumstance where they could ambush him and kill him. And so Festus, who apparently knew about it, had been warned about it, perhaps by Felix or maybe by some of the other people there who who knew about this ambush plan, uh, Festus said no. Uh, Instead of bringing Paul to Jerusalem, Festus says he's going to bring the religious authorities to Caesarea, where the governor ruled, where the governor lived. So rather than Paul going down there, he's going to bring them to him. And in verses 6 to 7, we have yet another legal proceeding. It's called a tribunal. It's one of the Roman uh, courts of law, and we see some of the same things being said again, the same case being made against Paul that has been made before. And uh, Paul responds, as he often did, by saying, it's not true, I didn't do it, I didn't do it. He actually says um, in verse 10, I am standing before Caesar's tribunal where I ought to be tried. To the Jews I have done no wrong, as you yourself know very well. If then I am a wrongdoer and have committed anything for which I deserve to die, I do not seek to escape death. But if there is nothing to their charges, no one can give me up to them. I appeal to Caesar. He's denied in verse 8 that he's broken no law of the Jews. He has done nothing against the temple nor against Caesar has he committed any offense. So Paul has made his defense again this time in front of the Roman governor, Festus. In some ways, that's a retelling of the same things we've read about two or three times. Once again, Luke records in some detail this ongoing court drama 
I don't know if you guys watch court dramas on television. Leslie and I occasionally like to watch courtroom dramas on television. Well, this is like a courtroom drama that just keeps going on. It's a, a first century serial where Paul is being brought again and again on these phony charges. They have no evidence against him. There are no witnesses who can actually validate that he's done any of the things they say he's done. And he makes the same uh, defense over and over again. And as he has before, he says, I appeal to the Roman emperor. You know who the Roman emperor was at this time? It was Nero. Nero. So you see how in, in, in this history, which Luke is recording for us, this, this accurate history, he's showing the incredible interaction, the way all these different things are intertwined. And we'll see that right through the end of the book of Acts. History is intertwined with the book of Acts. And of course, that shouldn't surprise us. Because the Christian life is intertwined with history. The Christian life is lived here in the real world. We don't live in a fairyland. We don't live in a place disconnected from storms in Louisiana or uprisings in Afghanistan. We live in that world. And the God who providentially rules over all things, rules over hurricanes in Louisiana, and uprisings in Afghanistan. It's the same God. He reigns. The same God who reigned over this interaction with human history still reigns. And at this macro level, The God whom we worship, the God whom we pray to, is the God who reigns over the whole world. And so when James was praying for us just a moment, I I, I love the pastoral prayer here at uh, Metrocrest. I I love the way it's offered, the dignity and the reverence uh, with which this prayer is regularly offered. And the other thing I love about it is something so distinctively Christian. The way we can intertwine prayer requests for something as global as a hurricane and a war on the other side of the world, we can pray to God about those things and turn right around and pray, Lord, help this brother or sister who has COVID. And that's the way our prayer life is because that's the way God is. It's it's an amazing thing how God providentially reigns over all of these things. That's the God whom we worship. That's the God to whom we pray. When I'm praying to God, I I can turn to him about all of those things. I can bring them all and present them to him. That's the God whom Paul worshipped. That's the God whom we worship. That's the God who reigns over the book of Acts, and that's the God who reigns over the year of grace 2021. It's the basis for all of our hope. It's the basis of our confidence that there is a God who is working for good. And if you read the headlines coming out of Afghanistan the way I do, and I grieve at what a mess that is and how much human sadness there is, and I read about the wasted money and the, and the lives that it's hard to see how all this makes any sense, and I read those things, and when I'm tempted to despair, I remember... There's a God who knows those things. 
He reigns over those things. He doesn't do those things. He governs those things. That's the word the, faith, the confession of faith uses. He governs them. He brings good out of them. He is sovereign Lord over them. Uh, you know, philosophically, you have to break things down to first causes and secondary causes and all this philosophical language to, to get at what is going on. Don't despair about Afghanistan. Yes, be concerned. Please pray about Afghanistan. I am. Pray about the global pandemic. I am. Let's pray about these things. But as we pray, let us remember the one to whom we pray knows infinitely more about it than we do, is infinitely more concerned than we are, and is absolutely determined to bring good out of it. He will bring good out of it. Will we necessarily see the way he's bringing good out of it? Maybe not soon. Maybe it'll be one of those things that is revealed to us in heaven. But he brings good out of everything, even the sinfulness of people like Felix and Festus and Pontius Pilate and Judas and others. God brings good out of it. He is specially concerned to do that. And we can hang on to that. So providence at the the macro level, the global level, is also displayed at the micro level, the deeply personal level. And that's what I want to think with you about for just a moment as we wrap up looking at this bridge passage describing yet more Roman history. Because what we hear about and read about here is not only Roman history, it's the history of a person named Festus, who's pork party name is just a glimpse of of an individual who actually lived. And that individual interacted with Paul and with the gospel. And I want to give you a sad case. There, There are a lot of wonderful cases. There are a lot of joyful cases. There are a lot of festal cases. We could we could talk about people like the household of Uh, Caesar, who are mentioned in one of the prison letters in Philippians chapter 4, verse 22. Paul wrote that letter from prison after what happens here in Acts 25. He wrote that letter to the church in Philippi while he was in prison, scholars think, in Rome. He wrote that letter and he talks at the conclusion of that letter, the next to the last verse of, of the book of Philippians, one of my favorite letters, concludes with a greeting from this, the household of Caesar, the household of Nero. He brings greetings from the church in Philipp, uh, to the church in Philippi. He brings greetings from the church in Rome to the church in Philippi. And he includes this little, this little uh, almost a throwaway line that there are people in Caesar's household who have heard the gospel, responded to the gospel, and are now part of this group Paul brings greetings from. So there there are lots of joyful stories, lots of joyful cases. But here, at the end of Acts, we see a couple of sad cases. We saw the sad case of Felix and Drusilla. In chapter 24, verse 26, we see that Felix wanted Paul to give him money. He treated Paul with the civility Roman law required, which was better than the Jewish religious authorities. But Felix kept Paul in prison Because Felix wanted a bribe. What a sad case for a man of 
of intelligence, a man of education, a man of influence, to be confronted with the gospel and because of greed to say no to the gospel is a sad cautionary tale. Uh, Felix was not the last person to resist the gospel because of material considerations. They wanted to know what the gospel would buy them. They wanted to know what it was worth for them to do the right thing by way of Paul. Sad case, Felix and Drusilla. There's this sad case of Festus. I want to close with this, the sad, sad case of Festus. We're not actually told a lot about Festus, but in verse 9, there's this interesting line. It says, But Festus, wishing to do the Jews a favor, said to Paul and kept Paul in custody. And and it's actually Festus's decision to keep Paul in jail and to enforce Paul's request to go to Rome. It turns out he did that not because of justice, but because he wanted to do the Jews a favor. He wanted to do the favor a favor to people who would benefit him. In other words, if, if Felix wanted to know what is it worth, Festus wants to know what's in it for me. What are the benefits to me? What a sad story of a, of a historical character interacting with the gospel. And let me tell you something, brothers and sisters. We will encounter the same reaction today. And it won't necessarily be a governor or a political person. But we're surrounded by a culture that is asking the question, what's in the gospel for me? All this airy-fairy talk about going to heaven and having a relationship with Jesus, and all these things floating out in space is the way the world looks at it. The secular culture of which we're a part has very little interest in those things. But you know what the world is interested in? Tell me how I can get rich. Tell tell me how I can have more influence. And it's sad to see in 21st century Christianity how the gospel is somehow sometimes twisted so that it's not about Jesus, it's about us. It's about us having what pleases us, us having our best life now to pick on one of my favorite hobby horses. That's become, sadly, what Christianity means to a lot of people. What a sad case that is. We see it in Festus who said no, kept Paul in prison. Paul goes from Festus's tribunal uh, to another tribunal, and then we'll see by the end of the book of Acts, he's in prison in Rome. Uh, Festus is a sad case who, in God's providential plan, actually kept Paul in prison when he could have been released, when he could have done something else. There could have been a very different story. And we live in a world today where there are people who make bad choices for all kinds of crazy reasons, not least of all because they want to know what's in it for them. Well, when you encounter that kind of situation, don't lose heart and don't be surprised. Don't give up. Pray to the Lord. Seek His mercy. Bear witness as Paul did. It'll be in a lot less dramatic fashion than Paul had to do it. But let us today in our situation, in our little corner of history,
Let us bear witness to Jesus. Let us trust in God's providential care. Lots of joyful cases remind us that God is at work in all kinds of remarkable ways. We get to be a part of that across cultural barriers and every other conceivable barrier. We get to be a little part of that. And our hope and our confidence in that is the power of God Almighty who still reigns over all things for good 